0: I always say Chris great leaders absorb fear and exude hope. So when you get in a crisis like this, it's really easy to get super complicated. But I th- I find that if you can take the time to come back and take that complication and simplify it onto one page and then communicate it effectively, it's a it's a really effective way to deal with things because your problem today might not be your problem 3 weeks from now.
1: We stand today. This is method the business with a shadow. The business method. The business method podcast.
0: The business method podcast featuring Chris
1: Reynolds, entrepreneurs, systems, methods, tools, and tactics for location independence. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I'm your host, Chris Reynolds, and welcome to the Business Method Podcast, a podcast featuring successful entrepreneurs and high profile people dissecting their business models. We dissect the different methods, tools, and tactics of high performance online entrepreneurs and high caliber people in a series format. On our first series, we interviewed 100 entrepreneurs in 100 days that have built businesses creating $100,000 or more annually. On our second series, we interviewed 100 entrepreneurs that have built location independent businesses that produce over a million dollars in annual revenue. And now we're interviewing 100 major influencers to get behind the minds and the science of using influence to grow business and influence income results, economies, and cultures. There's a growing number of people building these caliber of businesses like this, and we're going to figure out what it takes to make this. happen now. Let's jump in today's show.
0: The business method.
1: Hey listeners, it is a crazy time in the world for everybody, especially if you're trying to run a business right now. A lot of the digital entrepreneurs out there, the remote entrepreneurs, most of those businesses are less than 10 years old, and they've never been through a recession or a crisis or a crash before, and so this is new uncharted territory for all of them. On top of that, with what's going on in the world through the COVID crash, the COVID crisis, things look different every single day. So what I wanted to do is I wanted to get a seasoned expert in economies and business on the podcast, somebody that has a really smart mind, somebody that has experienced recessions and depressions and crises before to give some feedback on how we can survive as entrepreneurs, how we can come together and pull through. And that person is Greg Brenneman. If you guys have never heard of him, I I recommend just Googling him right now. He's the former CEO of Burger King and Price Waterhouse Coopers, the former president of Continental Airlines, the COO of Quizno Subs. He now chairs the private equity firm CCMP Capital. He is on the board of Home Depot. I believe he's the director of Home Depot. He is known as one of the greatest business turnaround experts in the world today, and he's is the author of a book called Right Away and All at Once. He's a very very smart guy. That's not even half of his accolades. He's on the boards of multiple different companies. Throughout the podcast, he talks about these really great stories of turning Continental Airlines around, of working through crises, times, and keeping things simple, keeping things simple, managing your anxiety and stress during this time as well. So every once in a while, we get somebody on the show that just has so much wisdom when it comes to business and economics. And Greg is that guy. He he humbly gave his time to us. And I'm so glad we got him on the podcast because listening to him just opened my eyes. And, and he gives a lot of solid business advice. For the uh, younger entrepreneurs that are going through challenges out there. And so, without further ado, you guys, I have to welcome Greg Brenneman to the show Entrepreneur Systems, Methods, Tools, and Tactics. Listeners, welcome to the Business Method Podcast. We are back and we have an exciting guest for you. His name is Greg Brenneman. He is a former CEO of Burger King and PricewaterhouseCoopers, former president of, of Continental Airlines, and COO of Quiznos Subs. He now chairs the private equity firm CCMP Capital. He is known as one of the greatest business turnaround experts in the world today. He has revived multiple businesses while creating thousands of new jobs. And he's the author of the popular book Right Away and All at Once. We wanted to get some professionals on the podcast to talk about handling business during times of crisis. We feature a lot of digital entrepreneurs, and few of them were even in business during the 08 recession. So I wanted to get someone on the show that has a wealth of knowledge and experience over the years to help these younger and less experienced entrepreneurs. And by younger, I mean people that have been in business less than 10 years. Um, Greg Brenneman has... uh, lived and experienced the 08 recession, the recession of the early nineties and the crash of the, of 1987 as well. So Greg, I'm really happy to have you on the show. I'm honored that you're here and welcome my friend. Thank
0: you. Uh, thanks Chris. Thanks for having me. And, uh, I think you just established both that I can't keep a job and then I'm pretty old. So, uh, so <laughs> was pretty, I didn't correct. mean any of that. I didn't mean any of that. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine.
1: Uh-huh. Right. Maybe you choose your jobs and you just have a vast, yeah, no, that's,
0: yes. that's yeah. been the case. Yeah.
1: So I just found out you're down the road from me. You're in Houston and, and that's your base there. I'm up in Austin. And so we were talking about business and then the crisis and what has happened with your businesses uh since the past i guess it's been eight, only 8 weeks now and um it it's really an honor to have you on the show because i uh me as a younger entrepreneur love learning you know business wisdom uh people that have just been through so much and and we take those little nuggets and apply those in our lives and one day hopefully be at at your level so we can share our knowledge to the generations that's come after us, and so thank you for joining us. And we want to touch on kind of what's happening right now. So I'm curious, like uh, from scope point of view, how do you how do you see the world and the crisis that's happening? Um, what are your, some of the things that you th- you see going on, and and how are you handling them?
0: Yeah, Chris. Uh, uh, in in terms of kind of what's going on, every crisis is a little bit different. So you can go back to the dot com you know, bust and boom and bust, I guess, of the uh, late 90s, early 2000s, and the Y2K, uh, you know, way back then, you know, I'll date myself, you can go through the financial recession, right, of 0809, And that came about for very different reasons. And all of a sudden, we, we get this rogue wave. And in Texas, we really got two rogue waves, right? We got oil uh, that all of a sudden went negative, uh, which it had never done with Saudi and Russia kind of battling it out for who can produce the most when there's no demand. And then, uh, and then we got uh, the other rogue leg, of course, this virus. And so, um, and a lot of other stuff happening, like in the world and, the, and, and out there that, that we're all looking at. And so uh, we're absorbing all that um, and uh, saying, you know, kind of what do we do? Uh, Thomas Sowell, who's a Stanford economist and sociologist, has a, a saying, and he says, there are no solutions, only trade-offs, Right. And I think in Texas we're doing a pretty good job in general of making the trade-off of how long do you stay closed, right, to prevent the virus, and then uh, when do you reopen uh, to create jobs? So just a, a few interesting statistics for you: in in Texas here we're about one one-hundredth the number of deaths per one hundred thousand people that New York is, so we don't look at all alike. Uh, and I'm the vice chairman of the Baylor College of Medicine board, and so I get really factual data every day on what's happening in the hospitals. And down here, we got ready, we got super prepared and, uh, we never had more than 10% of the beds or 5% of the ventilators that were ever used. Uh, so the hospitals have been virtually empty. That has its own problem in terms of revenue and profits for the hospitals. Uh, if you're in the hospital sector, anybody listening, uh, you know what I mean. But, uh, but from the point of view of actually accomplishing the mission of saying, let's make sure we have the hospital capacity to handle everybody, we were massive overachievers, uh, you know, in, in that. And that's a thankful thing. Obviously, we're grateful for that. Um, and uh, some of us helped. I know Home Depot, where I'm the lead director of the board, uh, sent the U- Houston Hospital System 100,000 R95 masks. And Baker used another board I'm on, printed up on their plastic laser printers, uh, 8,000 face shields to protect people, and some parts where you could actually, uh, on their uh, metal laser printers, they printed these parts where you could actually make uh, one ventilator good for two patients. Uh, so, it doubled essentially your ventilator capacity. A lot of creativity in the community to sort of solve this. But, but now we're slowly coming back to work, and we're seeing hospitalizations actually continue to drop, number of people in the hospital. So, that's a good thing, right? Uh, I think we're managing that pretty well. Meanwhile, uh, there's a lot of press. You know, If you listen to the press, there's a, there's a camp that says, well, you can never come back to work because somebody might die. And there's another camp that says, you know, we all have to work. And I think what Thomas Saul was referring to when he actually came out with his quote of there are no solutions, only trade-offs is, on one hand, and I'll just take the city of Houston, for example, we have a few over 200 deaths, which is never great. You never want anybody to die from this but a relatively small number relative to deaths from heart disease and and other things. At the same time, the suicide rates are up about 700%, and the number of uh, domestic violence cases into the emergency room are up about 700%. So it's not a perfect, you know, that the economy doesn't work great, and I'm sure a lot of people on the podcast can relate to that, when the economy's at 15 to 20% unemployment or higher, uh, you know, we don't function great as a society, uh, and unemployment claims have climbed past, well past that level. So, uh, so that's the trade-off piece of this. So I think we're making the right call. We have 50 states. We have 50 experiments going on. We'll figure out, you uh, the way only we can do in this country, you know, what the right answer is. So, you know, you can be encouraged about that. The government actually responded pretty well, but somewhat imprecisely to this, as you might expect. On the monetary side in the US, I think the Fed would get close to an A for how they handled this. They dumped a bunch of liquidity into the market. Uh, they've done a few things I might change, which is uh, you know they started backstopping high yield debt, which I'm not sure is a great idea long term versus letting the market take care of that. But they really provided a lot of stimulus. The, the Congress and the fiscal stimulus has been less than perfect. Uh, and I think your your, your uh, listeners will respond to that pretty well. So it was like we had three CARES acts so far, three different acts. And I think of them like B-52 bombers flying over, and instead of bombs, they're bombing out cash, right? So it was kind of $1,200 uh, you know, below a certain income level for everybody, $500 for kids. But then we did this thing where we put in the CARES act, we put this additional unemployment provision in there. And hopefully... Those of you listening to the podcast that have been able to avail yourself or your team to that have used that wisely. But uh, what we essentially did is the federal government came and said, not only will the state unemployment, you'll get that check, but you'll get an additional $600 a week. When you do the math on that, it equates to about $30 an hour. And that is a higher wage than about 60% of the country makes. And so you're basically establishing minimum wage at 60 bucks an hour. For or for at uh, 30 bucks an hour. So for small businesses that are trying to compete and survive, think restaurants, think uh, you know any kind of uh, big box retailer, think any kind of small retailer. I mean, basically, uh, many many of the jobs are beneath that level. And so as uh, in our companies, as we furloughed people and now are trying to bring them back to work uh, because demand is there. Uh, it's hard to get them off of, uh, off of unemployment because they make more money sitting at home, which is a, a weird you know, sort of dichotomy. And likewise with the airlines, they created an act where if the airlines keep their pilots and flight attendants gate agents until September, basically they get 77% of the wages covered by the government. But in September, the airlines, I've talked to all the airlines and the hotel CEOs uh, you know, in the country, they all know that demand is not going to be what it was, you know, when this ha- happened. So they're not going to need all those people. So we probably have another wave or two. Uh, so I think we're going to have to just be really fluid in how we think about uh, what's happening in the market. When this thing started, I started worrying about China supply chains and could we get product out of China because it was shut down. And that quickly morphed to, oh my gosh, how do I keep my business essential and keep it open? you know, for business. So I don't get shut down, you know, in the U.S. And so you just kind of have to have a pretty fluid mindset as you're doing your planning in these kinds of times. And I uh, I always say, Chris, great leaders uh, absorb fear and exude hope. And so I think as, as your listeners are thinking about um, leading their own companies, if they can think about how can I take the fear that my people have on them be open, honest, and transparent, but not about every thought I ever had because, you know, some of them, you know, might not be helpful to them, but exude some hope of where do we go next? How do we think, what are the trends that are going to emerge from this? How do we, how do we come out the other side in our business and uh, thrive and prosper? And I think there's going to be some great and awesome opportunities on the other side of this that really already are. So that's kind of how I think about the situation. And, uh, and where we're at today, I think we are beginning to come back to work, and I seriously doubt whether we'll have a mass shutdown again. I think uh, I think stay in place, at least in my mind, is pretty much a one-time event. The hospital we have plenty of hospital capacity now. So,
1: so there's there's something I wanted to run by you, and and you were talking about statistics in relation to to death and and um, unemployment. Um, I've heard that you know, for every 1% or so of uh, decrease in unemployment, there's somewhere around, I don't know, 40,000 deaths or so that are yeah. associated with it. So if we're dropping, so, you know, it, the question becomes where's the balance there? If we're dropping 15%, 17% in unemployment, I think that's where we're at in what you said. Yeah. Um, then, you know, and then COVID is also killing you know a few thousand people how do you measure- how do you justify that you, you know yeah, it, it, but it's harder to associate the unemployment deaths with directly with unemployment, yeah right?
0: no no, and you got suicide, so the opioid crisis started in oh eight o nine in the great financial uh you know the recession that's where that crisis started, right It started with people not having jobs and being at home and drug overdoses. You have suicide, you have lots of mental illness happening right now, obviously family violence um there's there's no way kind of remember when they first did the projections on covid there were going to be 2.4 million americans that were going to die from covid then they in the models right then they revised the model down with stay in place to 1.2 million okay i think right now we're at like 70,000 or something like that we probably are going to touch 100,000 but we're not going to be those models were off by a factor of 10 15 20 right And when you add up the other causes and to your point, you know, uh, the the sort of root cause of unemployment that gets to some of those other issues, they'll be far in excess of that. So I I don't want to minimize, because if you're sitting in New York right now, which uh, my partners are, you know, my firm, we're all working remotely that I'm in the office, but they're all remote and they will be for a long time. Our office is on Park Avenue in New York. Uh, uh, And, you know, I can't imagine it'd take it takes two days to get everybody up in the elevators there if you did four people in an elevator, right? So, I mean, it's like, you know, it's gonna not going to be back for a long time. That is a serious problem. So, it really is serious in New York. I had calls with Italy today, and they're just coming back, but there's serious problem in Italy. They had a just much higher incidence rate. We are very blessed here in Texas, and much of the country is like us where it just wasn't as high. And we've, uh, we socially distanced, we're washing our hands a hundred times a day We're, you know, we're wearing, uh, I turned, I made mean, one of our companies that was making kids uniforms and was going out of business and had them do face masks.
1: Oh yeah. Nice.
0: So we got branded face masks. Uh, you know, we're making a ton of right now. Uh, and so we, that's kind of one of the pivots we did, but, uh, But I think there's without a doubt, there's a reasonable you're not a bad person for asking that question. And sometimes the press will make it seem like, well, how could you possibly how could one person possibly die? Well, people die, obviously, every day. So, um, you know, it's not it's not that one person. It's like, how do you look at the whole picture? And I think you're you're thinking about that the
1: right way. Yeah, and that's a challenging thing for most people to look at the whole picture. I yes. think. You you mentioned some prediction of a couple more waves that might, or a couple more waves that might happen. Do you have any prediction on that? What that would look like?
0: Yeah, I think on in terms of the virus itself, um, we're going to have therapies. I think very quickly. Um, uh, we won't necessarily have a vaccine quickly. Uh, we might not have a vaccine at all ever, and that's that's not been talked about a lot. But if you look at So we have one of the leading experts at the Baylor College of Medicine in the whole world of infectious disease, Dr. Peter Holtez, and he's on Fox, CNN. If you watched any TV, you've seen him in the last few weeks. Um, And he's been working on vaccines for things like SARS and and AIDS for years and uh, years and years, and there's no vaccine yet. But there are great therapies. And so you've seen the beginnings of some drugs that are gonna be the basis of a therapy that'll allow us to treat this, I think. And I would imagine those therapies will get better and better and better. And by the fall, we'll have a pretty decent therapy that won't stop you from getting it. But if you get it, there'll be a reasonable drug cocktail that will help you get through it, essentially. Uh, In terms of how fast a vaccine comes, I'm not, uh, you know, I, who knows, I mean, everybody's talking about into this year, beginning of next year. That is, those are wild guesses. I mean, you can't predict science that, you know, that, in that refined manner and and nobody really has any true idea, but, uh, uh, but I think we will, we will continue to have to live with this like we live with the flu and like we live with other, you know, other things and just make sure our hospitals can actually handle it. So I think, we will be dealing a little bit differently than we, uh, you know, I, uh, I, I, love, you know, shaking people's hands and giving them hugs. And I think that's off the table for a while, but, but, <laughs> yeah. uh, but, uh, but, but I think we'll all adjust like we have, but I think we, we need to go back to work. So, um, uh, and, and in New York, you know, city, maybe they don't need to go back to
1: work, but, you know, I think,
0: uh, you know, for a while, you know, just because they got a different issue, but, but, uh, we, 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 I think we're going to do okay here
1: any thoughts on the economy you know i've heard everything from oh 18 months out things will boost back up two years everything's going to shut down no large events until 2022 uh, or 2023 actually i heard from somebody and so you hear and then a lot of people say no six months we'll be we'll be back at it again what are you what are your thoughts on that
0: If you you take the eight large banks, what they're predicting is they're predicting down, they were, we were down five in the first quarter, they're predicting down 30 GDP quarter over quarter this quarter in the second quarter, up 15 in the third quarter, uh, up, uh, up, uh, uh, I want to say nine in the fourth quarter and down five for the year 2020 and up five for 2021. That would be the V recovery you hear people talking about. So, uh, a pretty quick recovery. I think it's going to be elongated past that, but I think it'll depend on your industry as well. So, to the extent a lot of your uh, listeners are in the digital space and providing digital services, I think their recovery could be much faster. Um, You know, we're seeing at at Home Depot, where I'm lead director, I've been on the board for 20 years, we're seeing the buy online pickup curbside and the buy online ship to home go absolutely crazy. I mean, we've had pretty much same day delivery for a long time now, and you know, now on some things, we're just struggling to deliver in four, five, six days, because the demand is just, same thing for Amazon, the demand has just gone nuts for that kind of thing. So I think if you, if you play in that digital space, and we can talk about trends a little bit, which might be interesting and play into what, how people think about um, uh, slanting their companies, Politically, I think we're gonna kind of see uh, nationalism be greater than borders, right? So we've had all these great debates about immigration and stuff. You don't hear anything about that anymore in any country, right? We're gonna lock down, make sure we're secure uh, for health reasons, you know, if nothing else. And so I think you'll kind of see that that play out uh, that play out pretty significantly uh, politically in terms of you know how it all uh, how it all sets up. You're also going to see, Uh, nationalism be greater than globalism. So if you think about the global economy and uh, how we've had for probably 30 or 40 years before this, this push towards, you know, integrated global supply chains, uh, trade, free markets, free trade, um, we're not going to have China make pharmaceuticals, medical supplies or medical equipment for us anymore. I mean, that's just not going to, I mean, that's going to get, that's going to change. But as I look at a lot of the businesses we're in, the onshoring or nearshoring of, uh, you know, like Mexico, Canada, of uh, supply chain is changing overnight and dramatically. So uh, I think you're, you'll see those national, nationalistic tendencies, which have been going anyway. If you look at Brexit or what's happened in the U.S. or what's happened in Italy and most countries in Europe, it's been becoming more nationalistic anyway. And the big global institutions, the World Bank, the World Health Organization, all the post-World War II Britain Woods infrastructure is just one piece at a time getting either dismantled or uh, or minimized. So uh, there's some great political trends. There's also some pretty good social trends. If you think about it, um, we are actually uh, now consuming a lot more like you you have done for a long time. You were probably the leader for us, Chris. And uh And actually working out of our homes or wherever we happen to be. And we've all gotten used to this technology. And so as I talk to airlines, um, uh, big airlines uh, around the country, and talk to Marriott, the CEO and senior leaders of Marriott, they don't expect business travel to ever come back and be more than 60% of what it is, or more than 80%, I'm sorry, of what it is today. But they don't expect it to even be back to 50% by the end of this year business travel. And so they're gonna have to think about what's your hotel look like if you're all, if you got a lot more leisure mix than business mix. It's kind of a different product in a way. And so there's all that kind of thinking that kind of goes into uh, that. And you think about home. So we've been preparing at Home Depot for 15 years uh, and and actually executing on the move from suburbia to the urban environment, right? Uh, So whether it's millennials or uh, boomers, Everybody wanted to go and be urban, right? I want a smaller footprint. I want more restaurants. I want more community, more touch, you know, more density. In one month, we have seen that trend. So at at Depot, we have all the moving supplies. Plus, uh, we did a deal a while ago with Roger Penske, who used to be on the Home Depot board, to move all the Hertz-Penske trucks onto Home Depot's lots and rent them through the tool rental center at Home Depot. So we have this great data that tracks movement of people and, you know, where are they going? And in one month we've reversed out about 10 years of urban movement back to the suburbs. And so there was a stat that came out, I saw on CNBC as I was working out this morning, that actual, actual offers on houses, contracts on houses in the suburbs is up 14% year over year. And I can tell you that's all coming out because quite frankly, if you have uh, if you're going to work at home and you're going to recreate at home and you're going to entertain at home, home doesn't want to feel like 400 square feet. Uh, so it's interesting trends and we have, we own a pool equipment company. So we own Hayward, which is the largest pool equipment company, pumps, heaters, controls, uh, filters and, uh, demand and the pool equipment business. And it's mostly replacement. You start your pool, something's broke. You get the guy to come over and fix it. Um, is is going gangbusters right now, because if you have a few kids and you're at home, uh, even if you don't, but if you do, you certainly want those buggers out in the swimming pool. So uh, so everybody's opening up uh, their pools and uh, and there's a lot more emphasis around you know how do we uh, how do we do takeout? How does delivery work? How do we digitize our whole economy? So I think the fact that a lot of your listeners are in that digital economy and trying to figure it out. That's a that that's a perfect place to be right now.
1: I'd like to talk about some of your experience in in previous crisis and recessions in the past, and and, and you've been through three others or four others.
0: Yeah, yeah, at least a, a, a two two as a CEO, right? And uh, and uh, and then probably another couple. You know, as I was working my way up the ranks. Yeah. yeah.
1: What are some of the. The most important lessons you've learned from those experiences and or maybe a, a story from one of those, one or two of those that apply to what's happening today.
0: Yeah, no, it's uh, I, what I've learned is when you, when you get in a situation like that, it's important to act pretty quickly and get your act together. So I always organize my thoughts. And this is what we did for our portfolio companies as well. Uh, and we did it really quickly. You know, I had these conversations with Home Depot too, uh, and said, uh, and Baker Hughes, and said, okay, uh, you know, what are we gonna do? And the first question is kind of, what's your plan, right? If you have a plan and track the progress of that plan, you have a pretty good idea. So the first thing we did, and I think this could be useful for your, your users, is I always pulled out in every business, I have a one page plan, and it says market, financial, product, and people. And then I name it something fun. So in the airline at Continental, market was fly to win, Uh, uh, financial was fund the future, product was make reliability reality, and people was working together. And just to give you a quick example, you know, when I took over the airline, we were just about to go bankrupt for the third time. And uh, we ended up turning it around and taking the stock from six to 120 and becoming one of the 100 best places to work. And it's a long story. But one of the first things I ask is, uh, you know, why don't we fly to places people want to go? And they say, what do you mean? And I looked and I said, why are we flying Greensboro to Greenville eight times a day when both customers are on the first flight? And they'd say, Greg, that was, that's strategic. And I'd say, well, when was the last time we made money at it? And they say, well, we never have. And I'd say, how strategic could that be? And couldn't we just charter a Learjet to get you and your girlfriend there? It'd be a lot cheaper. Um, uh, so, you know, it's that kind of thinking, just very simple thinking on those categories. So when you get in a crisis like this, it's really easy to get super complicated. But I, th- I find that if you can take the time to come back and take that complication and simplify it onto one page and then communicate it effectively, it's a it's a really effective way to deal with things. And then, like we talked about earlier, Chris, you need to keep your end markets fluid because your problem today might not be your problem three weeks from now. So you've got to be able to sort of take that plan and then react to kind of where and flow to where the problem is. where. Chinese supply chains might've been the problem in February or March. Now the problem is, uh, you know, can I keep my company essential so I keep it open? You know, it's, uh, so you gotta be fluid and, fluid and all that. And then you wanna act quickly, you know, would be the third point under kind of have a plan. So I've always think, thought you should actually take uh, eight, uh, 20 decisions a day, get 18 of them right and fix the two you got wrong. Uh, versus wait all day to make a decision is a terrible trait uh, during a uh, during a, a crisis, right? So uh, uh, you, you, don't, you don't want to be constipated in your decision-making. That's kind of the first thing, right? The second thing I always tried to do was build a fortress balance sheet, right? So uh, it comes down to cash, 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 and then whatever else is next, basically. Uh, so you have to have plenty of liquidity. And I'll tell you a quick big story on that, because I think it, 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 it emphasizes things so well. So the CEO of Home Depot and CFO of Home Depot and I were all brainstorming about middle of March. Right. And so we were doing what if scenarios. And at that point in time, you didn't know if you were going to be able to stay open or you weren't going to be able to stay open or what was going to happen. So uh, we said and we always have protected our orange blooded associates, the orange apron guys you see in the store. Right. And uh, that's back to Bernie Marcus and Kenny Langone and Arthur Blank, the founders, who are all still alive. And uh, I think they'd skin us all alive if we didn't protect the associates. But we have a strong culture of doing that. So um, uh, we said, what would happen if we got shut down for 60 days? How much cash would we need if we wanted to pay all of our people and not you know, take any haircuts? And this is before the, the PPP or the, you know, the CARES Act or anything like that. And we said, we did the calculation of how much we'd sell online and what the offsets would be. And it came out to $11 billion. So we needed $11 billion to be able to pay everybody for 60 days. And we have a really good balance sheet. So we actually said we have $3 billion of cash. And uh, we went out to JP Morgan and got a $5 billion line of credit to back our tier one commercial paper program. So we're up to eight. And the bond market was completely shut down. So there was no way to get you know, any cash in the bond market, but we said, you know, if anybody can open the bond market, Home Depot can open the bond market. And so we went to the bond market and we opened it. we uh, were the first deal out there. And within two hours for that 3 billion we were asking for, we had $27 billion worth of demand. So we ended up taking $5 billion worth of bonds at seven, 12 and uh, 20 and 30 year duration at a 3% interest rate. And all of a sudden, voila, three plus five, now plus another five, gave us $13 billion. And we had plenty of cash for the worst case scenario. Now that's a big example, right? That's be, you know billions kind of flowing around. But the same thing is true at our own portfolio companies. So we ran on much smaller companies. What is our base case scenario for how the business is gonna perform during COVID? And what's the deep downside case, right? Our budget was somewhere above both of those. But, you know, what are our two cases? And then we sort of said, if we're really preparing each company, how do we actually prepare our balance sheet and get the cash we need that we can survive that deep downside case? Uh, uh, There's not a long term if there isn't a short term. And if you run out of cash, your strategy can be beautiful, but who cares, right? I mean, you can't execute it. So. So that's kind of the second, you know, the second point. The third point I'd leave your listeners with is is think money in, not money out. So the first thing you do is get your expenses in order and everybody had to do that here and the government had some programs you could put employees on as we've talked about. But it's much harder to think, how do you stay relevant? And I'll give you two examples of that because I think the creativity may play and be useful for your listeners uh, to hear. So we have a business that make, called Founder Sport Group that makes uniforms for kids' sports, right? Youth, high school, college. So think football, basketball, soccer, baseball uniforms. Well, when this crisis hit, the first thing everybody did was cancel school and cancel all the sports programs, right? Everything through the professional ranks got shut down and still shut down. So you can imagine how many uniforms you sell when you're shut down, Sports are shut down, I mean, nobody buys uniforms, right? So our demand dropped 90%, like overnight, dropped to 10% of normal levels. And of course, we had to go through the process of right-sizing the team and all that. But then we said, what could we do so we don't get shut down and stay essential? And that's when we came up with the idea of, why don't we make branded masks? We already make branded uniforms. We could make branded masks for businesses, for schools, for universities, for medical centers for uh you know just about anybody out there and so we set up this business almost overnight and we all started reaching out to our contacts and i have about 650 or 700 ceo and chairman kind of contacts and i blast emailed uh an email out on mask sales and i just got an email from the ceo of founder sport Group that keeps me up to date on my mask sale he says i'm his top salesman now but 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 uh so we we got you know we're selling we sold mass to baker Us and some to the airlines and some to the hotel companies and a lot of restaurant chains and uh some sports teams that kind of want to build a brand their you know themselves and uh and I'm getting a constant I got two more universities just to, before I got on the call with you that emailed me that I hadn't even emailed, but the president's got an email from a president of another university that I'd emailed that emailed me and said, "Hey, we want to get some of those too so So we're building another business, but that's just something we wouldn't have ever thought of, right, until, but it also allowed us to keep our factories open and to stay essential. And we have another business called Eating Recovery Center, which is the leading provider of the treatment uh, for anorexia nervosa, for example, for uh, eating disorders and mood and anxiety and the things that kind of go with that. And so um, that business, when people, we went to stay in place, the outpatient part of that business, which is about 40% of the business, patients couldn't travel to get to their outpatient treatment, but they still really needed treatment. Uh, and so we actually turned that into telemedicine, right? Where we uh, given them the treatment at home, helping them prepare breakfast, therapy, then help them prepare lunch, therapy, and then a snack. And, um, and so overnight, in about two weeks, we turned on uh, teletherapy, And then on the way to that, we got a little bit lucky because uh, the governors of all the states called the insurance companies, which hate to pay for telehealth or teletherapy. And they said, you're gonna pay for it, no questions asked. And then uh, there were 38 states representing 88% of insured lives. Normally the therapist would have to be licensed in the state they provide the therapy. But 38 states said, if you're licensed in any state, you can provide therapy in our state. So all of a sudden, our market went from 14 states that we were in to 38 states that we could provide, and the business is now doing incredibly well, but it came off a basis of just pure fear of, uh, you know, what's going to happen to this revenue stream, and even on the inpatient side, uh, initially, admissions dropped off because people couldn't travel and get to the facility. We had people travel from the Middle East to get treatment at, at ERC, I mean, from all over the world. And so now uh, that's starting to come back too. So we're seeing some green shoots, but we kind of kept it alive uh, and built a new business at the same time in both of those companies. So it's interesting. Then the fourth step is build a team. And I think everybody will relate to this one, but uh, you really find out uh, there's a saying, a famous war saying there are no atheists in foxholes, right? Everybody develops religion in a foxhole. And, uh, uh, A couple of my buddies have climbed Everest. I have a couple mountain climbing buddies. And one of them will tell me that, Greg, there was one person of faith, one Christian at base camp. And there were four Christians by the time we got up to camp four. Uh, So these kinds of times actually allow us to speak into other people's lives. But you find out who wants to be on your team and who can really execute. And I think it's at times like this you need to communicate a lot. So we set up at 8 a.m. every morning. Uh, we have a consumer call for our consumer team. And at uh, 11 a.m. or at, uh, at 9 a.m. rather, we have a call for our industrial team every day. And so, and I'm the only person on both of those calls, but I sit on both of them. And then uh, I talk to the portfolio company CEOs each several times a week as we're kind of working through this. And I think by keeping the team cohesive and making sure you're reacting together and you build some com- camaraderie around it. Uh, it builds, uh, it builds a lot of a de to core during this time. And I have a couple of people here. So I said, normally we'll have, you know, we'll have a, a summer event of some kind, uh, you know, just to, as an office just to kind of celebrate, you know, the office and being together. So last night I said, Hey, we got this great table outside. We can stay socially distanced. I'll grill some steaks. Why doesn't everybody come over? So we had a big barbecue, right? So you can, you kind of build that esprit de corps during these times. That team will carry you when times get better through some amazing things. But you really build the foundation of it you know, during this time. And then the last point is, uh, is let the inmates run the asylum. And uh, basically, after you have a plan, you've got, you know, you've got a fortress balance sheet. You've figured it out. You've thought about how to generate some revenue, not just reduce cost. And you've got your team close to you. It really is empowering those other people in your organization that aren't on your direct team and letting them do their job, making sure they know, uh, you know, uh, you know, what's going on. And we spent a lot of time at Continental and Burger King and other places really making sure we push the plan down, but then also empowered people, the gate agents to upgrade somebody if they if they needed to for a reason or just kind of I've got a lot of great stories about that, but but uh, but empowered people. so. That's kind of how I triage when I get in these kinds of situations. I kind of click through that list and say, okay, how do we, how how am I going to react on, as I go through this? And that helps me actually absorb the fear a little bit because then there's a plan you're kind of, and some hope on the other side you're pointing to.
1: Greg, what, throughout those crisis and recessions and crashes you've been through, what would you say was the most challenging time and, um, maybe a little bit more about uh, the context of it and and how you pulled out of it. What are the solutions you guys found?
0: Yeah, probably my most challenging time when I got to Continental Airlines, um, it was what was known as the, uh, as the 10th place airline. So it was 10th out of 10 airlines in on-time performance, 10th out of 10 in baggage handling, 10th out of 10 in customer complaints, had 10 presidents in 10 years and went bankrupt twice in 10 years. Other than that, it was a fantastic company.
1: Uh,
0: you know, it was it was 4.99 on Fortune's 500 list of, you know, admired companies. So it was not, it was not in good shape, right? It was in bad shape. And, uh, and I discovered um, three weeks after I got there um, as president that um, we were going to run out of cash. Uh, that was Thanksgiving Day. We were going to run out of cash Janu- the next January 15th and not be able to make payroll. And so um, I called and uh, when I asked, why were we gonna run out of cash? I got this long story about how American Express, you know, when the people build their credit cards for airline tickets, they had all our cash. So I called the president of American Express, who's a good buddy. And I said, you got my cash, I need you to send it to me because I really need it. And he looked, he said, Greg, what are you talking about? This is like Thanksgiving morning. And I said, hey, could you just check and see if you're holding cash? My guys tell me you are. And it turned out they didn't have any cash. When the guys, when the team had built the budget, they had just—they knew what the costs were of the airline, but they wanted to show the board they were going to make a profit. So they plugged the revenue line, which went flew down to credit card receipts, which said we should have had all this cash that wasn't there. So anyway, that was pretty scary. So I called the board, uh, and uh, and uh, and called uh, Gordon Bethune, who was the CEO, uh, my partner, and I said, hey, we're going to run out of cash in you know January, and. Uh, there's two things we can do about it. We can declare bankruptcy for the third time, but nobody's ever survived that. Or I can get the large creditors around the table and uh, we can try and work something out. So the next Monday, I had Boeing, GE, Airbus, uh, you know, all this usual suspects, uh, uh, creditors uh, around the table. And uh, I said, hey, here's where we are. Here's the plan. So I presented that go forward plan I took you through uh, earlier. And I said, here's what we want from you, which is we don't want to make principal and interest payments for a good long while. And they all started yelling at me and, <laughs> uh, and I got up to leave the room and I was only 32 at the time. They said, Greg, where are you going? And I said, I'm going to go home and watch TV. And they said, well, how can you lay this on us and go home and watch TV? And I said, well, do you know what the first step in problem solving is? And they looked at me kind of funny and, uh, and I said, well, the first step in problem solving is who's got the problem? I said, this whole airline's worth $175 million. You guys are owed $12 billion. You fix it, right? So they came and got me about 20 minutes later, and we worked something out. And 18 months later, they were paid back 100 cents on the dollar. That's how quickly the airline turned, uh, you know, going through. And so that was a pretty scary moment because you realize that, uh, you know, there were 55,000 lives at stake from getting that decision right. So um, so fortunately, it worked out. <laughs> Young and naive to know any better. so, uh, so. Yeah,
1: that's what I was going to ask. At 32, is not that old. What, what gave you the confidence and, and clarity, really, to go in with that solution and propose it to everybody?
0: Well, we knew we had the right... I thought we had the right plan. So Gordon and I had sat down at his dining room table and we started drinking wine and we started writing down everything that was brain dead about the airline, everything that was wrong. And then we skipped, switched to Scotch and we kept going. And then we organized it into those four categories, market, financial, product, and people, fly to win, fund the future, make reliability, reality, working together. And that became kind of the plan that we were executing. And so uh, uh, you know, we knew, I thought we had the right idea, right? We were this very logical stuff, fly to places people want to go, get them to their destinations on time. Uh, you know, with their underwear, you know, show them uh, movies when they're bored, feed them good food when they're hungry. You know, we had, you know, equipped for everything, but, uh, but it was all very logical. And um, there was really no other choice, right? I mean, it was like, you know, guys, here's where we're at. And, you know, fortunately, they, you know, they say there's a saying, if you owe a little, the bank owns you. If you owe a lot, you own the bank. We, we owed a lot. Yeah. Uh, so we, had, <laughs> you know, we had some, le- I guess we had some weird leverage, right. And that they, you know, they all wanted to see us survive, but, but, uh, it, it all worked, uh, it all worked out. Uh, it all worked out, but, uh, it's just, I think if you can take really complex things and simplify them during these times for people and for yourself, it's just so much better because we all tend to just really complicate things too much.
1: Yeah. There's so much anxiety and fear, you know, going across people's minds and and worry about because everything's changing every day, you know, and um, I'm just curious, Greg, what, you know, we talked about, um, you know, the five steps and then some, some trends that you think are emerging. Are there any other uh, really big or, or um, opportunities that you think are going to emerge, specifically like in a digital in a digital world. Digital, digital world, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: I do think there are. So if you think about the whole stay at home, uh, the on site versus on premises uh, thing. So digitally, and the big examples of this, you know, but I think there are a lot of businesses underneath this as well. Where are we going to consume movies? Are you going to go sit in a movie theater with three hundred of your favorite friends? The trend's always been going, already been going to essentially Netflix or, you know, home theaters or movies at home. So you think about all the entertainment, think about esports, right? Buying a ticket, sitting next to someone, watching some game. Um, I think those trends are, are fundamental and uh, are going to kind of continue going. So, you know, what can you electronically consume at your home? I was one of the early adopters of Peloton, you know, I think just right as they got started. And think about just the, uh, the fitness at home, right? Versus, I've always had fitness equipment at my home. I like not having to go anywhere and uh, working out at 4 a.m. and stuff, stupid stuff. So, so it, it made more sense. But, but, uh, but you sort of think about what you can kind of do in the trends digitally to, uh, to deliver that. I think the other thing is, I think we're in the first generation with Zoom and Teams and stuff of uh, video conferencing, right? And it's been pretty good. I got to admit, as an old guy, you know, I got used to it really fast. I do it all day long. I've been on since 7 a.m. And hopefully I'll take a break after you and I talk for half an hour to let my brain you know, come off a of fry mode from looking at the screen. But, but, uh, but it really works pretty well. But there's got to be a whole other generation of thought as to how does that work and how do we uh, transpire? We're already talking in the companies that we own about doing every other board meeting virtually. Uh, because we found it's good. And so we need to be, we need to touch and feel each other, you know, and be with each other in, in social context and in community, uh, but maybe not every time, right? So I think you're going to see, you know, the, the experience. And you think about home office, think about, you know, digitally on the kind of real estate stuff you want to set up. Uh, you know, what are you going to, you know, what kind of, what are you going to want? And, you know, where everything was headed in the direction of work and, Let's go find that. I think probably many of the folks on this podcast are now saying, I'm going to do work except for my house, right? You know, I, you know it, it was a kind of nice idea to go there, but, you know, I'm going to set myself up very differently in my home uh, with microphones and technology and all sorts of stuff to be able to do that. So there's a whole digital opportunity, you know, I think around that figuring out the last mile for so many businesses, small businesses, how do you get the product from a store uh, or from a place to, uh, to the home uh, efficiently and cost effectively? You know, right now we've got these like Uber Eats and uh, Grubhub and all that doing it for food, but they all lose a boatload of money. So, um, you know, we know that's not sustainable. We saw that, we've seen that movie many times. So how do you actually convert that into something that's economical, and what's the best way to, you know, what's the best way to do that, um, uh, you know, technologically. So I, I think there are all kinds of fun and interesting uh, things. But if I was working digitally, and I'm not a digital expert at all, I'd be working on those trends that took me closer to people's uh, homes, closer to their lives, that took it stuff from on premises to off premises. Uh, you know, that, that that would be, I think there's gonna be a whole nother wave of invention that comes out of, you know, out of this uh, crisis. And I think the thing you gotta kinda of figure out as a small entrepreneur is how do you kinda, of, what's your role to the customer? Because scale really is starting to matter a lot. So if you're Home Depot versus the local lumber yard, if you're JP Morgan versus the regional bank, with all the online stuff and all the technology needed to push it out, that stuff is all expensive as it scales. Amazon's a great example of that. You know, the scale advantage is just incredible. Costco scale advantage is just incredible. So you're kind of seeing also a world where scale matters more than it probably ever has in the past. And thinking about how you can do something that tags on and helps big business become more efficient, I think would be also a kind of B2B play that would be interesting digitally.
1: Yeah, that's, that's really good. I hadn't thought about that yet. Um, couple more questions and we'll wrap up here greg um i I just want to if you have any words for or any thoughts for the entrepreneurs the businesses out there that are are low on cash um they've had a good business maybe running it three five six ten years or so uh but never got themselves uh cash cash you know just just a bunch of cash in the bank for cash reserves right Mm -hmm. and they're sitting like on less than three months of reserves and businesses nearly wiped out for them. What what do you say to those guys? It's
0: really tough, Chris. I think, uh, you know, it's a great question. I'd say first, make sure you really understand maybe with your local bank, uh, what the government programs avail to you, right? So uh, don't give up at the first pass because there's all kinds of little nooks and crannies in those programs. Uh, They were put together very quickly. They're very, uh, you know, confusing in many ways because of that. You know, it's uh, hard to fight your way through it. But I think uh, there are there are there is some hope and some help inside of those programs uh, for for most people. Uh, so, you know, that's if I was really short on cash, that's probably the first place I would go because, I mean, when else in your life? And I've never seen it before in my life. So some of you are younger in yours. I've never seen the government print money like this. It's I think there's huge implications for it, but longer term. But if it's there, you might as well get your piece of that. So, uh, you know, go, go go do that. And then I think to the extent you have some family and friends around you that have some resource, this is a great time. Conventional financing is pretty unlikely to be available, so uh, for small business. So it's really to the government and the programs they're trying to put together first, and then I'd sort of think about who is that core you know, those five steps can apply to your life too. And so one of the steps in build a team is build a life team right around you. So who is in your life team? Who are your closest uh, confidants and closest contacts that can really help you, uh, you know, maybe just bridge a tough time, right? And, uh, and uh, that's not possible for everyone, but for a number of people, it, it's sometimes just as simple as saying, being open and honest and transparent and laying out, here's really my need. And, um, is there something that you can, uh, you can help me with? And, uh, and it's usually your close friends and your, co- your, co- your mentors that do that for you.
1: For, for, for life teams. I love this concept for, for life teams for you, Greg, uh, what are the type of people that you uh, try to surround yourself with?
0: Yeah, I think of, so I, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian, so I have some pretty good personal steps for each of those, uh, like build a plan is, uh uh, for your personal life is important uh, as well. And I call that choose freedom, building a plan, you know, for the for your personal life. But, but for a team, uh, on the team, uh, if you think about what, and you follow the Bible at all, what Jesus did, he had four that were really close to him. He had the 12 disciples, he had 72 and then the masses. So I sort of think in those concentric circles. And, um, so the people that are closest to me, I've had some great mentors over time, 41 George W mentored me. Senator Lloyd Benson mentored me. I, my great uncle invented the auger that came from the con- took a grain from the combine to the wheat truck. And he invented the machine that made the first hay bale and those round bales and square bales. Oh, he turned totally. that into a company. Yeah. So he was one of a really early mentor of mine. I've got, I've had some great mentors. So that's kind of probably the first place as a start the founders at home Depot are all still alive and are still my mentors uh, uh, today but I also have a core group of uh, three other CEOs. I meet with every Sunday morning before church from six 30 to eight 30 in the morning. And that's kind of the guys I bounce stuff off of. I live life with, uh, we share problems with each other. Um, and if you don't have it, and most guys don't, I really didn't focus on this till I was like 45 years old. Um, if you can build that core team that meets consistently where you can hold each other accountable and share, uh, problems and, uh, and work through things together that have the same value structure as well as you do. Um, I've had that same group for 14 years now. So that's a, that's kind of a key piece of my life of building my, you know, life team. And then of course my family, you know, is in that close, uh, close circle as well. And then I'd say one circle out, there's just a whole bunch of CEOs I'm close to, uh, Of the companies that I'm on the boards of, of our portfolio companies, of other people I've met over time, that I try and touch base with, you know, every two weeks or once a month, a little less frequently than that inner circle, but pretty frequently. And then there's a group outside of that where we do CEO dinners and and uh, and uh, you know, I I, like I said, I have buddies that uh, one of my really good friends is a guy by the name of Eric Weinemeyer, and Eric has climbed all seven summits he's kayaked the entire Grand canyon he's climbed el capitan twice he's climbed the five faces of the alps uh he paraglides and he's blind wow and he's wow. and he skis with he skis with me uh you know we go hiking together we go biking together uh, so um it's great to have different people in your life that you know are part of your circle that can uh can influence you in different ways. Right. And, uh, that's kind of what I've always enjoyed different aspects of life. And I think the one thing I'd say in your business, don't get so caught up in your business. You really got to say, as you make decisions, does this bring me closer to my faith or further away, closer to my maker or further away? Does it bring me closer to my family or am I going to get so busy? I'm going to lose my family in the process. And so many entrepreneurs do. Does it, uh, does it allow me to build the right kind of friendship, that right inner circle and have the right friends? Is it going to kill me because I can't work out or take care of my body or eat right? And then finally, uh, finally, the finance piece, right? Is a decision I'm making going to take me down the, down the ruins in finance so I can't be generous to others and I'm going to be beholden to a bank somewhere? Yeah. Um, but so it's five S: faith, family, friends, fitness, finance, and that's how I kind of make my decisions in my life.
1: I like that a lot. Just one quick thing, Greg, you mentioned being up at 4am and exercising from home. Uh, is this, uh, what's your, your daily routines look like? Um, I know, imagine you're incorporating family time and everything. So yeah. what time times that you sleep, uh, what time you get up and, and things throughout the day, you,
0: yeah, I, I normally wake up around four. Uh, I've done that my whole life. Uh, normally, I've been traveling a lot, right? So uh, uh, I've been on the road, you know, at my own plane, but, which makes it easier. But I've been on the road a, a few hundred days a year. So uh, I'm normally on the road. I haven't been on the road now since end uh, of February. I was supposed to go to the Middle East the first week of March, and I canceled the trip because I didn't want to get stuck there, you know, in quarantine. But but uh, uh, so it's a little different now, but I get up at four and I work out um, and then I come to the office. I'm usually in the office by around seven or so. Uh, and uh, and uh, or 715. And if I'm on the road, I work out and go do what I, I'm going to do. Uh, and then the day, the day is pretty eclectic. So I might have a couple of board meetings. Uh, you know uh maybe Home Depot and Baker use, or I had two calls uh with the, our portfolio companies this morning uh early, and I talked to two of our investors uh before I got on with you, so I've you know been on the phone all morning uh and then uh and then uh generally i'll uh grab something for lunch if I get a chance and um and uh do you know more of the same in the afternoon and then uh and then go home, and I try and get home by—I always have by, you know, six o'clock, five thirty, six o'clock at the latest, so I can have time. Now it's we're empty nesters, so it's just Rhonda and I, but we've had a blast having our, our kids are close, so they come over too. But uh, we got a little granddaughter, so that's fun. But uh, uh, you know, we we just have dinner together. We've been eating outside and really enjoying this time. It's the only time of our marriage where I haven't been like traveling. Uh, we've been married for 36 years. So, uh, uh, so like this, so we've been enjoying that time and, uh, and enjoying the family time that's come with, there's been a lot of, for all the bad that's come through this time, there's been a lot of good, I think in terms of, you know, connectivity with uh, family and friends and uh, a couple times a week. We like now have friends over for dinner, we eat outside and stay socially distanced, but we kind of have refused a little bit to crawl into a hole and just be
1: yeah. And then your, yeah. your bedtime permits.
0: Bedtime. It depends. Like when I'm traveling, it's generally a little later. Cause I have a, a dinners every time, you know, it's maybe 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, something like that. Maybe 11. Um, at home, if I, if I have a, I've been speaking some at night to business schools and stuff that have asked. Uh, so that might drive me a little later, but, uh, or if we have an event, uh, but, uh, I, if I sit down on the couch in the evening, I'll fall asleep. Uh, so, uh, you know, I'm tired by then, but generally about 10 or 11 o'clock Yeah, that's when I go to bed. All
1: right, Greg, I think we'll wrap things up there. If the listeners want to learn any more about what you have going on or where they can find you or your book, where's the best place they could do that at?
0: Yeah, I think if they, they, if they can probably Google me or just go to Amazon and the book will be there the right away and all at once. And, uh, and I think there's, there's enough information. I don't, I don't really keep up a website or anything, but there's enough information out there. They can probably track me
1: now. Yeah. There's some great videos out there. I was watching those before the oh. show, Greg, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been an honor. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much, my friend.
0: Th- thanks, Chris. Good talking to you.
1: And listeners. We're going to wrap up there. Thank you guys. And we'll see you on the next episode. Goodbye, everybody. Hey, listeners, thanks for joining us once again. We wanted to remind you about our high-performance productivity coaching and our five, six, seven, and eight-figure private masterminds. These are all designed for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs to help you scale rapidly and grow. Check out all the details at thebusinessmethod.com. That's thebusinessmethod.com. And we'll see you all on the next episode.